If you will, take your Bibles uh, this morning and turn to the book of Matthew and to the sixth chapter. And we'll begin reading in just a moment in verse 5. So Matthew 6, 5. Father, as we turn to your word now, we say as Jesus taught us and as we sang that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word spoken from the mouth of the Lord. And so, Lord, as we consider these words spoken from your mouth, please feed our souls and encourage our souls. Convict our souls where we need to be convicted in every way, God. Help and feed us from these words spoken from your mouth today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks back, we looked at the prayer life of Jesus from Mark one thirty-five, where we read, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a secluded place and was praying there. I hope those words found a lodging place in your heart and that they've stuck with you and that your desire to be alone with the Lord in prayer has increased over these last 14 days. Um, And if it has, if we are going to imitate Jesus' example, if we're going to set aside significant time to be alone with God, we also noted two weeks ago that we might do well when we get to the secluded place to use the Lord's Prayer as a kind of template for our prayers, to pray along the very lines that Jesus taught us in that famous passage. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and so on. We should use that as a guide to the kinds of things we ought to pray about. And when we looked at the Lord's Prayer briefly that morning two weeks ago, I said to you, perhaps at some point we'll have time to come back and consider this prayer in more detail. Uh, And as the last couple of weeks have gone by, I began to think to myself, well, there's no better time than the present for us to do that. And so what I'd like to do is spend the next several Sunday mornings, as the Lord allows, taking a verse-by-verse look at what is probably one of the two or three most well-known passages of Scripture in all the Bible, namely the Lord's Prayer. You'll find it there in Matthew 6, and although the prayer itself doesn't begin until verse 9, as I said, I'd like us to begin reading back in verse 5. Jesus says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full, but you... When you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom 
and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This famous set of verses that we call the Lord's Prayer, as you perhaps realize, is actually a part of a larger passage that is famous in its own right that we usually know as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is an actual sermon that Jesus delivered up on a hillside, it would seem, uh, with the crowds below him. And that sermon outlines how the citizens of Christ's kingdom should live in this world. And there is much, much more to see and to say about Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 than we'll take time to cover this morning or even over the next few weeks. We're just looking at one point in the sermon. Perhaps it's really just a sub-point. It is a famous and amazing sermon that we are finding ourselves in the middle of, and it would repay your time to set aside a half an hour or so, perhaps sometime this afternoon or later in the week, to read it carefully. But as I said, we're going to zero in on just one of Jesus' many points. Uh, Really, I think the Lord's Prayer actually serves as a sub-point, but we can talk about that at another time. But this morning, beginning in verse 5, you'll notice this sub-point is about prayer. Jesus is teaching his followers about prayer as part of this longer sermon. And he begins by teaching them how not to pray. You notice that. I hope in verses 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. How not to pray. Prayer is not an opportunity to show off your religious vocabulary. Prayer is not a chance for you to shine in front of other people. We sometimes do pray in front of other people, but he says in verse 5, your motivation ought not to be to be seen by men. Prayer is meant to be done in simplicity And it's meant, much of it, most of it, to be done in secret. Just as Jesus did in Mark 1.35. He got up and went to a secluded place. And there he prayed. So Jesus begins, I say, by teaching us how not to pray. But then, like any good teacher, Jesus does not stop by telling us what not to do. He goes on to give positive instruction about what we actually should do. And as I said, his positive instructions on prayer have become some of the most well-known verses in the Bible. If you grew up in church, even if you grew up in a church that wasn't always great in their handling of the Bible, chances are somewhere along the line as a child you memorized this prayer. Our M&M's class at 9 o'clock right now is memorizing it even this fall on Sunday mornings. And many of you, when you were children, were sitting in the same sorts of miniature Sunday school chairs just a few decades ago, hiding Matthew 6, 9 through 13 away in your heart just like they are now. And even if you didn't grow up in church, even if you started coming to church as an adult, I'm willing to bet that most of you ran across these verses on more than one occasion, even before you began attending Sunday services. This is a famous passage, and for good reason. Because anyone who has truly been converted to Christ, anyone who truly knows the Lord, will want surely to begin to pray. Doesn't that make sense? Sometimes our desires to pray wax and wane, but if we know the Lord, we have a desire to speak to Him. But the question is always, where do I begin? How do I talk to God? What does He want me to say to Him? I hope that's a question that interests you. I hope that you want to learn more and more 
how to talk to God and what he wants to speak with you about. It's one of the greatest privileges that we have in Christ, isn't it? This is one of the great reasons Jesus died, so that we sinners who deserve nothing but alienation from God might begin actually to have real fellowship with God and communion with God and communication with God and even call the Almighty our Father. That's why Jesus died, so that we could call God our Father and talk to Him. What an amazing and profound thing prayer is. It's a great privilege. But the question is, how do we do it? What does God want us to say? Sometimes when a person is just beginning to pray or just learning to pray, we say to them, in answer to that question, what does God want me to say to them? To him, We say to them, well, you know, just say to God whatever's on your heart. And there's, of course, some truth to that. We can tell God whatever's on our heart, right? No subject is off limits with the Lord. He already knows what we need. He already knows what we're thinking anyway. But to say to a new Christian that prayer is simply saying to God whatever's on your heart is actually quite shallow because there's much more to prayer than that. Particularly, more than just telling God what is on our heart, a true child of God will also want to talk to God about what's on his heart. Indeed, the child of God will want the things that are on his own heart to begin to align with the things that are on his father's heart. And that's where this Lord's Prayer is so helpful. Jesus has taken the time to give us a concise template of the sorts of things that matter to God and that therefore should matter to us when we speak to him. That's what the Lord's Prayer really is. It is a template. It's a model In fact, that's the first of five things that I'd like to say this morning about this prayer, all of them from the first verse of the prayer. In the first place, the Lord's Prayer is a model prayer. We said this a couple of weeks ago, but it bears repeating. The Lord's Prayer was not intended primarily to be recited so much as it is an outline of the kinds of things that Christ's people will want to concern themselves with when they pray. It's not mainly meant to be recited, but to be used as an outline. Now, it's certainly not wrong to recite this prayer, especially insofar as reciting these words will help us memorize these words, which will then help us use these words as starting points when we pray in our own words. But the main idea of this prayer is not that we recite it, but that in using it, we have categories under which we talk to God about the things that are most important to Him. Just having repeated the prayer is not necessarily to have communed with or communicated with God. There's a strong suggestion along these lines in the very way Jesus introduces the prayer there in verse 9. You'll notice that He does not say, Pray these words, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so on. He says, Pray in this way, or In some versions, it translates it, pray after this manner. And that's what the meaning is, even in the original Greek. Pray in this manner. Pray after this model. Pray after this template. What Jesus is doing, as has already been said, is compiling a list here of the kinds of things that are important to God and therefore that ought to be important to his people. He's giving us not mainly a set of words to repeat, but a set of categories that will be fleshed out in our own words. A set of headings, 
if you will, under which the majority of our prayers ought to fit. And I want just to walk through, through those headings with you briefly and rather broadly, thinking about how we might use this as a model for our prayers day to day. When we speak to God, for instance, verse 9, it's good to begin by hallowing his name, by praising him for who he is. We won't simply, of course, just stop at saying, hallowed be your name, and then move on to the next thing. Hallowed be your name means we will praise God for all sorts of his different attributes at different times in our lives, using different words probably each day. Sometimes we'll use our own words to hallow God's name. Sometimes we may quote another passage of scripture, hallowing God's name, but we'll want to begin there. And then when we move on from praise to making actual requests, we will want not to pray only for the things that concern ourselves, but, verse 10, for things connected with God's kingdom. For instance, the preaching of the gospel in our local church, or the salvation of our lost neighbors or loved ones, the missionaries who are sent out to the remotest parts of the world, and so on. And we'll also want to pray for God's moral will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. The protection of human life, for instance, the obedience of our children, God's will for our country in this season of the election, and so on. So the phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, may take several minutes to flesh out as you put it into your own words in your own circumstances. And yet, praying for God's kingdom does not mean that God doesn't want to hear about our Needs. God surely wants us, verse 11, to come to him with our own personal requests and to be specific about what kinds of daily bread we may need. You may need actual bread. You may need food and you pray for that. Or you may need money to pay your rent. Or you may need rest for your body or healing and so on. And so God wants you to come with those things. Also, we would be remiss if we came to God in prayer and all muddied in our sins and never stopped as in verse 12, to ask him to forgive us. And again, that confession will include more than just a recitation of verse 12, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors, or forgive us for the many ways we fail thee. No, when we're really communicating with God, we'll probably want to list the many ways we failed thee and specifically repent and confess to him those things spoken from our own hearts. And then finally... When we're praying, we're foolish to ask God for forgiveness of our sins and not to, verse 13, beg him for help in overcoming our sins. And again, we'll do this uh, in, in our own words. We'll take the principle of verse 13, Jesus' general category, and we'll work it out with specific requests regarding our own specific struggles. We'll consider each of these categories in further detail over the next month or so, but what I'm trying to show you right now under this first heading is that Jesus has provided for us here in Matthew 6 a model prayer. He's given to us the beginnings of a prayer list. He doesn't say everything that we'll want to say, of course. We have to fill in the specific details. But what he has done here is provided us with the appropriate categories, the things that Christians will want to talk to their father about. Every Christian's prayer life ought to include these elements. Hallowing God's name, verse 9. Praying for the advancement of his kingdom, verse 10. Requests for daily provision, verse 11. Confession and repentance, verse 12. And then pleas for God's help in overcoming our sins, verse 13. That's the kinds of things that we'll want to pray about. Now, that's not to say that every time you pray, you have to include all of these items in exactly this order. And if you don't, you haven't really prayed unless you've ticked off all the boxes 
on a given day. But each of these categories, though they may be mixed in order and though you may pray more on one day for certain things and then more on another day for others, all of these categories ought to be staple portions of your prayer diet over the long haul. We ought to be praying regularly along all of these lines. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All of those things ought to be normal to us. In fact, I urge you perhaps this afternoon to just look back over Jesus' categories here and assess your own prayer life. Again, the assessment is not, do I pray for all of these things every single time I ever bow my head in prayer? But the, the assessment should be, over the course of my prayer life, over the course of a week, do I hear all of these things coming out? And if not, what sorts of petitions am I prone to forget? Do I forget to hallow God's name when I pray, just to praise Him? Do I forget to confess my sins and so on? Am I so concerned that I only pray for the kingdom that I don't actually ask God for my daily bread? Whatever it may be, if there are holes in your prayer life, you may want for a season to open Matthew 6 each time you set aside your time in your closet and make yourself pray along these lines until it becomes habit. So that's the first thing. The Lord's Prayer is a template. It's a model prayer, but it's also an intimate prayer. An intimate prayer. Note well the opening words of Jesus' model. Our Father. Our Father who is in heaven. That's an amazing juxtaposition of concepts, isn't it? The God of the universe who is in heaven wants us to call him our Father. That ought to blow our minds. The God who is in heaven, verse 9, wants to have a personal friendship with us. And not just a friendship, he wants us to speak to him as a little child speaks to his father. Those are words of intimacy, aren't they? Now, yes, Jesus wants us to have a framework in mind when we pray and not to simply be willy-nilly or say whatever comes to our mind first. But that doesn't mean that our prayers should feel stiff or that God should seem distant to us. No, what Jesus describes here is a child climbing into his father's lap, trusting that his daddy loves to have him come, believing that his daddy can do anything, knowing that his father always has time for him, and knowing that if he asks his father for bread, he won't get a stone in its place. And when a child climbs into her father's lap to pray like that, what is the quality of the conversation? Is it formal? Is it rigid? Is it rehearsed? Is it wooden? No. When a little child climbs into her dad's lap or into his dad's lap, that child can just pour everything out on the table, can't they? Even if it's all out of order, even if there are tears mixed in or excitement mixed in and they're almost speaking too fast to be able to be understood, the father understands, doesn't he? And... He knows his child's heart. And that's how God wants us to pray. He wants us to speak familiarly with him, to pour out our hearts to him. That's why I said that while each of these categories in the Lord's Prayer is important, we shouldn't be obsessive or formal about ticking off all the boxes in order. That's not how a little boy talks to his dad, is it? The categories are needful, yes, 
But as we come to know our Father more and more, as we climb into His lap day by day, we probably won't any more need to have the categories in front of us all the time because these sorts of prayers, as we more and more love our Father, will have become part of our DNA. They'll just flow out of us naturally, like a little girl rehearsing all of her little thoughts to her dad. If you know your Father, you know what to talk to Him about. You know what He cares about. Because it's not just here in Matthew 6, it's all over the Bible. And as you walk with the Lord, these things will begin to just flow out of you. And that's how it should be. This is the prayer of a child to his father. And it ought to be as natural to us as that. So let me ask you, do you have that kind of relationship with your heavenly father? Do you call him father when you pray? You don't have to, but is it normal to you or does it seem too personal or too awkward for you to actually think of God as Father and talk to Him as Father? And if you call God Father, do you trust Him as a Father? Maybe I should back up just for a moment and ask, is God really your Father? Not everyone is in this kind of relationship with God, are they? Not everyone's a child of God. No, the Bible says by nature that we're all born enemies of God. The Bible says in Isaiah that our sins have made a separation between us and our God so that he does not hear. So not everyone can pray like this. Not everyone can even really pray. And if we're enemies of God, we may speak out towards the heavens as casually and familiarly as we like, but that doesn't make us God's children. It doesn't mean he'll listen to our requests. Our sins have made a separation between us and God so that he does not hear. So how do we go from being enemies of God to beloved children? How do we get adopted into God's family so that we can pray like this? Well, let me just give you one verse. Ephesians 1.5 tells us that we receive adoption through Jesus Christ. We receive adoption into God's family through Jesus Christ. When we attach ourselves to Jesus Christ, when we entrust ourselves to His finished work on the cross, when we place our faith in Him as our only hope of forgiveness and salvation and heaven, then, in the words of Hebrews 2.11, He, Jesus, is not ashamed to call us brothers. When we come to Him in faith, He is not ashamed to call us brothers. Isn't that a splendid verse? Someday I ought to preach on that verse. If you have handed your life over to Jesus, He is not ashamed to call you brother. He is not ashamed to call you sister. And if Jesus Christ is your brother, then His Father is your Father. That's what Ephesians 1.5 is about. He predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ. If you belong to Jesus, then God is your Father. And if God is your father, then you can speak to him with the faith of a child. And so the question backing up again is, do you belong to Jesus and thus to the heavenly father? Are you God's child, really? If you're not, you may become so even today. If you'll turn from your sins and hand your life over to Jesus Christ. When you do that, and many of you have already, when you hand your life over to Christ in repentance and in trust in Him, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. And the Father is not ashamed to call you son. Not ashamed to call you daughter. And if God is not ashamed to call you His child, then you should not be afraid to call Him your Father. Verse 9. 
You should not be afraid to speak to him personally, intimately, like a child. So back to my original question, do you? Do you talk to God like that? Do I? Do we really see God in this way that Jesus describes him here as a loving, kind, good father who always has time for us, who is eager to have us on his knee, who is glad to hear our prayers, who is more than able to answer? Do you think of God like that? Do you believe what Jesus said? Just a chapter to the right here in this gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 7. We sang it, didn't we? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? God wants you to pray in that way, familiarly, trustingly, with the faith of a child. He loves to hear your prayers if you are his own, and he loves to give you what is good. He's your Father. And you don't have to have a big vocabulary or a great theological mind in order to talk to your father, do you? Just take the simple categories of Jesus' prayer and speak to God like a child and he will give you what is good. So the Lord's Prayer, we've said so far, is a model prayer. It is an intimate prayer. And thirdly, briefly, it's a reverent prayer. A reverent prayer. In saying that we should be intimate and familiar with our prayers, we need not confuse familiarity with flippancy or intimacy with irreverence. Let us remember that the one to whom we pray is, yes, our Father, but he is our Father who is in heaven. Doesn't that add a significant layer of seriousness to what we're doing when we bow our heads in prayer? That's one reason why we bow our heads. We don't have to bow our heads in prayer. God hears us whether we're looking up or down or to the side or eyes open or closed. But we often bow our heads just as a sign that we remember that our Father is in heaven. Yes, God loves us and teaches us to crawl into his lap and petition him as a father. But fathers still command our respect, don't they? Even our earthly fathers, intimate as we may be with them, deserve our respect, don't they? For instance, there's a difference between calling your father daddy and calling him pops. One is familiar, the other in many families would be cheeky and irreverent. And if we expect to show reverence to our earthly fathers, how much more to our father who is in heaven? How much more to this father who doesn't sit in a recliner on the same floor where we play Legos, but who's lofty and exalted, sitting on a throne with the train of his robe, filling the temple in heaven. This is a reverent prayer. I don't want to linger here because I don't think this is a big problem for most of us, but file it in your way, a way in your mind that intimacy is not the same as irreverence. You don't talk to God the way you talk to your buddies. Hey, big guy, it's me, Frank. That's not the way Jesus teaches us to speak to our Father. In addition, you don't shake your finger in God's face when he doesn't do what you wanted him to do, no matter how much 
Some guru may tell you that, quote, it's okay to vent your anger towards God. No, it's not. He is your father and he is in heaven. You're free to ask God honest questions. Why, God, I don't understand. But there's a difference between asking God a question and questioning God, isn't there? All of these things belong to to reverence, to praying to our Father who is in heaven. And let me also, children, say a word to you regarding reverence and prayer. I hope all of you will listen up just for a moment. Children, there are a few worse things that you can do to God than when mom or dad or Sunday school teacher or pastor is praying for you to be squirming around or acting silly or making noise or distracting your brothers and sisters. Remember that the God whom we're talking to is in heaven and deserves your respect. And remember that he sees you even when everyone else's eyes are closed. He loves for you to come to him. So, so come to him rather than distracting yourself and others from coming to him. This is a reverent prayer. King Solomon, you may remember, spoke well in the book of Ecclesiastes when he reminded us concerning prayer, God is in heaven and you are on the earth. And that calls all of us to show him reverence when we pray. That's what Jesus is saying here. When we pray, it's to our Father, but our Father is in heaven. Needn't make prayer formal or uncomfortable, but it means our familiarity with our Father ought to be alloyed with awe and with respect. This is a reverent prayer. It's also, in the fourth place, a plural prayer. It's a plural prayer. Again, this isn't a point I want to linger over long, but did you notice that Jesus did not teach his disciples to pray, My Father who is in heaven? He did not teach us to pray, give me this day my daily bread and forgive me my debts and lead me not into temptation. The prayer is in the plural, isn't it? All the way through. Our Father, our debts, and so on. Now the explanation for that may be as simple as the fact that Jesus was teaching this prayer to a group of disciples and not to one individual. Perhaps he put these words in the plural simply because his audience that day in the Sermon on the Mount was plural. But I think it's strongly possible that Jesus spoke this prayer in the plural for another reason. Not simply because his audience that day was plural, but because Christianity in general is meant to be lived out in the plural. Christianity, as Nathan Gearhart reminded us a couple of Wednesdays ago, is a gathered religion. By its very nature, God designed our faith to be lived out in the context of a group, a family, the church. And I think Jesus is probably reminding us here in Matthew 16 with his plural language that our prayers ought to reflect that plurality of the church. We ought not merely pray for our own needs but for the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Give us this day our daily bread. Perhaps it will help you when you pray to have a list of your brothers and sisters, a church roster, and perhaps a list of other Christians you know. And just to think, is there somebody that I really need to be praying for today? And not only should we pray for one another, but I think Jesus perhaps may be hinting here that we also pray with one another. He teaches us, yes, to go by ourselves into our closets, but then when he tells us what to pray, it's in the plural, as though perhaps when we pray, there are other people with us, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. 
The plural nature of this prayer suggests that Christians will not only pray in their closets, verse 6, but that we'll sometimes also pray these same sorts of requests together in a group. How often do you pray with other Christians? Some of us a lot, some of us not so much. Husbands and dads, do you gather your families to pray to our Father who is in heaven? All of us, are we capitalizing on the opportunities that we set aside as a church or as a ladies group to pray together? How often do you join your voice together with other Christians in saying, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts? I think the plural here is important. Christianity is a gathered religion. And therefore, we must pray sometimes gathered. We pray for one another, and we pray with one another. So this is a model prayer. It's an intimate prayer. It's a reverent prayer. It's a plural prayer. And finally, we need to notice that the Lord's Prayer is a God-centered prayer. It's a God-centered prayer. Notice that the very first requests in this model prayer are about God and not about us hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven jesus will come of course to our petitions for ourselves he will teach us to pray for our daily bread and our sins and our temptations and so on but first he teaches us not to pray about ourselves but about god's name and god's kingdom and god's will and i think that's instructive Not only that we should pray for these things, but that Jesus puts them first in his list. Again, I'm not suggesting every prayer has to fall out in exactly this order, or that if you begin your prayer by asking for your daily bread instead of for God's kingdom, that God won't hear you. not suggesting that at all. God is better than that, isn't he? But the point is that we too should be better than to only always come to God with our own personal wish lists. And without being legalistic about it, it may help us to just train ourselves to begin our prayers by praying for the things of God first. Our prayers, like this model prayer, should be God-centered prayers. And here in verse 9, the first God-centered category that Jesus lays down for us is that we should regularly be praying, Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. In our everyday language, we would say, God Make your name holy. Father, more to the point, may we human beings treat your name as holy. That's what it means to hallow God's name, to treat it as holy. Why is God's name so important? What's in a name? Well, God's name communicates his character. The Bible speaks of God's name in the same way that we speak of ourselves and our families having quote a good name we all know what it means to have a good name don't we for you or your family to have a good name is to have a good reputation to have a character that is known connected with your name and it's a disaster isn't it if your brother or your son does something to sully your family's name how much more if we do that to god if his reputation and his name is sullied by our 
words or our actions. So we're to pray, oh, Father, prevent us from doing that. Help us to hallow your name. Help us to adorn your reputation, not to sully it. Help us to accurately reflect what you are about. Help us to live and speak in such a way as that people will think highly of your name and your character and your person and who you are. But hallowing hallowing God's name is, is not just about not sullying it, but also, if we're going to hallow God's name, we'll also want positively to praise his name, right? In fact, it seems to me that this first request, hallowed be your name, is perhaps a hint that not only should we pray that God's name would be praised, but that we should join in the praising. Not only should we pray that God's name would be hallowed, but in our prayer time, we ought to actually begin hallowing it. I alluded to this near the beginning this morning. Part of the implication of Matthew 6, 9 is that our prayer should include praise alongside petition. And as I scan over the Lord's Prayer, like I encouraged you to do, assessing my own prayer life, I see that this is one area in which I'm so often deficient, especially when I pray by myself. When I pray by myself, I'm so often wrapped up in my own little world and fixated on my own requests that when I open my mouth in prayer, I fall right into making those requests and keep making them until the amen without ever stopping simply to extol the goodness and the greatness of the one who loves me enough to hear and to answer. I don't think that when I do that, God refuses to hear my prayers. As I said, he's better than that. And what father doesn't love for his child to climb on his lap? What father doesn't love to hear his child's voice and to help them in their need? But a God who's like that deserves that I should pause often amid all my requests and just hallow his name for a few moments, praising him perhaps for answered prayer, adoring his holiness or his goodness or his omniscience or his power or his mercy in the gospel and so on. That's why it's good to begin your time alone with God by reading the scriptures. Because when you read the scriptures, God's name, God's character, God's attributes, God's reputation will jump off the page at you, won't it? And it will help you to begin your prayer just as Jesus teaches us by hallowing God's name. Remember that prayer is a two-way street. Our prayers are about God just as much as they're about us. In fact, our prayers are really more about God than they are about us because he's so much greater than us. And so in all of our praying, let's be sure that we are God-centered. Let's be sure that we always take time to praise him for who he is. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name.